Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, superstars. You are listening to episode 150. Woo! Of the Howie Games. 149. Carves it away. 150. Thanks so much to every one of you for supporting the show, for listening to the show, for spreading the word about the show to your crew to help Das, MJ and I get this far. We are pushing on towards the double ton. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Okie dokie, no better guest for episode 150 than Mark Bosnich Bozza, as he's known to all and sundry, was a genuine superstar In his heyday, the Boz was one of, if not the, best goalkeepers on the planet And it breaks to Nevin, a great save by Bosnich How did he manage that? He was lying on his back on the ground With over 200 games in the English top flight, playing for the likes of Aston Villa, Chelsea and Manchester United, who were the biggest club in the world at the time, Mark had an incredible career. But as you'll hear, Mozza has come unstuck a few times as well, but he takes it all in his stride. He talks openly about what happened, about what he learnt about the perils of fame, how he came through it all, all delivered with that magnificent laugh of Mozza's, (laughs) never too far away. (laughs) How good is the boss's laugh? Anyway, on the topic of laughs and the 150, MJ sent me this from one of the very early episodes when the Pickle and Big Penguin were much, much younger. Indulge me. It's a proud dad moment. You get it. I can't believe we're being put on ice, Pickle. What's the world going to do without us for four whole weeks? They will be stuffed, Pickle. Totally. And what are we going to do? Superstars like us need constant gratification. Well, Mr. Con- <laughs> well, Mr. Constant gratification. <laughs> well, Mr. Constant gratification. <laughs> You're going to start school, and good luck to your teacher with that, Nico. In case you're not aware, Pickle, not many preppies have a hit podcast. I will be big time at that joint. Sure you will, Big Penguin. Not. Anyway, we are back March 9 with Series 2. Of the Pickle and Penguin games. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Seems like a lifetime ago when they were recording those. These days they're getting older and they are starting to bring up the rather uncomfortable subject of payment for services, something we're going to need to deal with very, very soon. Anyway, Bozza comes to you courtesy of Stan Sport, where he dominates in all the wonderful football coverage they have, the Champions League and plenty more. It is worth getting and watching Stan just to see the Bozman in full flight. Mark Bosnich is a larger, larger-than-life personality. He's an entertainer, he's a storyteller. Bozza, he typically bursts into a room, smiles at everyone, gives his opinion, laughs his head off and then exits, leaving everyone feeling good about life. That's Bozza. Enjoy the story of Mark Bosnich, a man who has a crack. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind 
You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Wow Welcome to the Howie Games for the 150th edition. We had Aaron Finch for number 50. We had Adam Scott for 100. We needed a big name for 150. And for mine, it gets no bigger than this man. Dominated in the Premier League over 200-plus games, represented the Socceroos, and now killing it on Stan Sport. And a man, we've been trying to track this down for a couple of years now, the great Bozzer, Mark Bosnich. It's wonderful to see your smiling face, mate. How are you going? Good, thanks, Marky. How are you? And, and I told you, didn't I, uh, during all those difficult times when there was lockdown, and I said, listen, I said, bear with me, but I will do this with you. And I've, I've finally achieved it. We finally got there about eight months later, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I'm pumped about it. Um, you're dominating on Stan Sports. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, w- when this comes out, um, a, a mutual friend of ours will have just had his state funeral, Shane Warning. You sent me a really kind message mm. saying, mate, I hope you're going okay. And I appreciated that. He was like you, Bozza. Mm. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but he was a larger-than-life character that made people smile, which is what you do. Mm. I know you will have met him around the traps and at Fox and at various functions. I never saw you two in the same room, but it would have just been a laugh-off and a smile-off. It's something I wish I would have had the chance to see. Yeah, it's even when you're talking about it, I, I can just feel emotion coming through. Um, I, like I said, I, I, I don't think I... I can remember spending a night with him or so forth, but I always remember, well, number one, what everyone else remembers of, uh, of how much joy um, that he brought um, to, to all Australians during the 90s because I was over there um, at that time. Yeah. And uh, there was only one test series that we lost while I was over there. That was in 2005. And even in that series, I think he took 37 wickets. So that was one of the greatest test series of all time. I, I used to go visit them, um, the, the Australian test team, um, I went to see them in, I think, 1993. I definitely went to see them in 1997 and for the World Cup in 1999. Huh. So I, I used to always say hello. I saw him a couple of times, I think, at his at his nightclub, just as I said hello to him. Um, and uh, I, I'm very, very good friends, obviously, with Dwight York and Brian Lara. They used to always speak mm. very, very highly of him. Um, but I, I was really speechless. So I'm, I'm so terribly sorry um, for, for his family and his children. And uh, and it's a massive loss. Um, so, so far as I'm concerned, I mean, uh, when I grew up, we, obviously we had a pantheon of, of great sports people, um, both yeah. men and women. Uh, we always knew about Sir Donald Bradman, even though we didn't have the opportunity to watch him. Uh, Betty Cupford, um, her you know her exploits at the 1956 Olympic Games, uh, Rod Laver, and so many tennis players. I, I could keep going. Uh, and and cricketers that I grew up with, you know, Dennis Lilly, Rod Marsh, Greg Chappell comes to mind. Um, but he, uh, for me, he's right up there with uh, the greatest sports uh, people that uh, that Australia's ever produced, and it's a terrible loss, an absolute terrible loss. And um, you know, I, it, it's hard; it's, it's really, really hard to take because you, you know how much of a cricket fan I am. Those who are who are listening and, and don't know, I'm a massive cricket fan, and to know, and and it must be difficult for you. So, he's listening to yourself and and him and and Alan Gilchrist and everyone else during the summer. Um, and when that news came through, like I said, it was only a couple of days after Rod Marsh, of course. So um, it, it was it was terrible. And like I said, may he rest in peace. But his contribution will never be forgotten. Yeah, it's beautifully spoken, mate. It, it, I don't knowing you and seeing you around the traps at Fox Sports. Mm. Um, 
you always start talking about cricket and you you you, you know you send me the odd <laughs> message about cricket and what what you've just gone through there yeah. talking about you know you you've nailed the number of wickets he took in the 2005 ashes you've got the series right did you play cricket as a young fella? Because I did, I did. Yeah. I, yeah so I always, tell me about Bozza the cricketer. I'm well, fascinated. I, I always tell Mark Wall when I see him. I said, you know how? Like I said, how lucky are you? He's, he's going to be white. Why? And I said, well, imagine if I decided to play cricket, you'd hardly have played for Australia. Who'd be? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So from a young age, um, I would say from uh, I think from age eight or nine, uh, I started playing with my local team and. I don't know if it's still a record, um, but my cousin and I, um, Peter Surgeon, we we got the opening partnership record one day against Moorbank for Preston's. It was none for 200 on the morning. Because we used to play from 8.30 to 11.15 if it was a, a two-week game or yep. from 8 o'clock to 12 if you have the limited overs game. So I'll have to check that. I'm sure it was under 10s. Uh, it was definitely a record at the time. It was none for 200, but... Um, it was a great time, and and my dad used to like. He still tells a story. He goes, "That was one of the saddest days in his life when I decided um, to give up cricket because it was in uh, overlapping too much with football." So he said, "You know, he used to say, what a difference to football.' He goes, I can go to the cricket, I can look at the form guide, the ladies mate give me a cake, it's so relaxing." Yeah, he goes, he goes to football, he's on edge, what's going to happen, and this, that, and the other. People are shouting, this, that, and the other. Um, but but they were that, yeah they were really great days. I, I really had a great time, make some really good friends, and and it sort of as well um, really ingrained me to uh, a part of Australian culture, which is so important, and it's remained important to me as well. You're kindly here today on behalf of Stan Sports. Yes. You're at Fox Sports for a long time. You yeah. made the move to Stan. Um, they're getting into all sorts of different sports. How do you go with the late night operations? You're doing a fantastic job, but your job is late at night because the or Premier League gets popped yeah. in late or early. Yeah, early, early morning. Very, very true. Well, I had a wonderful time at Fox. Uh, absolutely fantastic time. Um, and to cut along, I mean, I was, what, I think over 12 years uh, yeah. there, as you know. Um, and obviously with, with the Premier League and the A-League, and uh, but the bottom line is we lost the rights. And you know how we've been working in the TV industry. That's above our yes. pay grade. Um, so I, I was very grateful um, to them for not only the experience that I got, but the fact that if they wanted to, um, they could have, you know, sort of made me see my contract out. But they realised how much I love my football, as much as I love other sports. Football's number one. Um, so, so they they let me go, and and uh, and it's great now um, doing the football that that I made my bones in. We'll talk about it a bit in terms of European football. Um, the early mornings are, are different. Yeah. But you know what? I, I, like, I remember always remember that my, my dad used to always have a go at me for not being able to. I was never a good person getting up early in the morning. And my late grandfather, he, he used to send me up there because he used to go to Flemington Markets with, with his produce from the farm. So he used to, if I misbehave, he'd send me up with him to go to <laughs> Flemington Markets. You know, I remember, you know, remember being on the stall at about five in the morning going, you know, how much are they? I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. $2 or whatever. <laughs> So like yeah, like he was saying to me the other day. See, I told you, you got to get used to getting up early in the morning. So I was like, okay, whatever, whatever. But but what I love about um, I'm a casual observer of football. Yeah. Like I enjoy it if I have the yeah. time to sit there and watch it. But I always feel that as broadcasters, we're in the entertainment industry, and I know I'll watch when you're on because I know that one, you'll be enjoying yourself. 
Two, you'll have an opinion. And three, you'll entertain me. Is, is that natural or something you've had to work out? Because if I think, right, if I'm watching football, I want to, I want to see Bozzer on there. Uh, I, I must say the entertainment side is definitely natural. Um, as an, I mean, my mum used to always say that, you know, sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad. But to be fair, he's always entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, is, that is one thing that is natural. Imagine if Arnie starts him and like he's saying, like, I'm going to start you for five, ten minutes and then yeah. we'll give you a big round of applause. Yeah. Can you imagine if he scored in those ten minutes? <laughs> And they put the number up and Timmy just refused to come off. <laughs> I wonder if they do a standing committee about that one. Um, uh, the enjoyment factor really comes from the fact that I think I'm very, very fortunate. I did something that I loved for so long in playing football and mm. now I'm talking about it. And coming back to then the original thing you said, okay, mix that in an entertainment thing, you know, I... You know, I was new to the industry when I first come back here in 2008. And, and, you know, you always listen to people that have been there for so long and have been in the industry. And they, and they said exactly what you said. Just remember, especially at, uh, you know, Fox and Stan, you pay, people pay subscriptions. So, mm. you know, and especially if it's early morning or late at night, you've got to give them a reason to, to stay up, you know, because sometimes the games, as you know, whichever game it may be, whatever sport, they, they, it may not be the greatest of games and that. So you've got to give them something different. So... I always think to myself, you know, if I'm sat there, I want to hear, and that harps back to my days of, like I said, watching World Series cricket and, and on Channel 9 all those years, those commentators, I, you know, they taught me as much about cricket as I learned playing it, yeah? Mm. Um, you know, I used to watch it religiously and, and it was entertaining. You know, that, for me, they were as, as much of, as, as part of that, that time yes. um, as was the cricket. Bossy, you, you should be in the Fox Cricket Country <laughs> Box over, <laughs> over the summer. Hey, the name, Bosnich. You mentioned your yes. mum and your dad. Yep. What's the origin of the name Bosnich and how did the Bosniches end up in Australia? Okay, well, um, mum was born here, um, but her mother and father, late mother and father, so my two grandparents, they came uh, to Australia between the two world wars, so after World War I. Um, her father worked on the sugarcane farms in North Queensland. Where'd they come from, Bozza? Oh, from Croatia. It was then, Croatia. it was then, it would have been the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. That's what I think it was, what it was called. Okay. Uh, but Croatia from, from Yugoslavia back then, that's what it would have been called. Uh, and her mum worked in Broken Hill and then they come to Sydney and they met. Dad came, his dad was born in 1944 uh, in Croatia. Well, like I said, then it was Yugoslavia. Uh, he came over here at 50, so 1959. So he came over here in 1959 and then uh, met my mum and I was born 1972. So, um, so it's a, it's a really good story because, like, you, you, you don't really realise because we've been very, very fortunate in our lives that, that we have a very, very good life. But, you know, after the Second World War in, in what was Yugoslavia, like, my, my dad's father basically sat down the three boys of the family, had three boys and two girls, huh. and, and basically said to them, look, listen, he said to the oldest one, I can afford to send you to, you know, to school to become, you know, like a lawyer, which he did, he become a lawyer. Uh, he said to the middle one, he said, look, look, you're quite sturdy. You're going to stay here and help me on the farm. And he said to dad, look, listen, I can't afford you to send you to the same school as the oldest, but if you want to, you can go with your uncle in America or with your sister who's in Australia. So dad said, yes, yeah. so dad said, oh, you remember got sent a soccer ball um, from Australia, from his sister. So he thought, oh, you know, I'm going to go to Australia. So there you go. So he turned out, <laughs> but at the time when he turned up, he said his suitcase was taller than him. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, Bozza, I, my um, my dad um, 
Anglo-Saxon, um, work for the one company, a hard, hard worker, yeah. you know, have a couple of beers, not too many. But we used to, in the Latrobe Valley where where I grew up, yeah. he had this friend that was a Yugoslavian who I only knew as Big Eric, right? Yeah. And, and we'd go to Big Eric's joint and he'd always have a pig on a spit yeah. and he'd have this drink and I can remember it. It was called Slivovitz. Yes, that's that's one of the um, that's one of the many uh, you could say aperitifs. Um, right. Uh, other people will know it as uh, uh, like the Italians have grappa. Um, right. So so Slivovitz, along with rakia, uh, there's another one which which doesn't come to mind now. So a lot of them are made. Say for, for example, rakia or Slivovitz, I think is made from either the peach. Or somebody who's watching this, or plums. I think it's the peach. I think yeah, you're right. Yeah, peach or plums. And there's the other one. I think Krushkovats is, is the other one. And then there's the rakia, which I used to see my dad and uh, his late brother-in-law make. So they would have a whole lot of grapes in this massive tub. Yeah? yeah. Right. And what they would do is they would stand with their bare feet on all the grapes to smash all the grapes down. They they collect all that 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 grape uh, juice, so to speak. Mm. They let those uh, you know, the, the, the outside of the grapes. They let them ferment for about two or three weeks and then they mix them with water and then you got, well, it's recalled rakia, but I think for all our um, people who are not too familiar, it is like rocket fuel. <laughs> right? But this is the funny thing. They, they, they tell you to use it for everything. You know, if you've got a cold, have some rakia. If you've got a sore shoulder, rub some rakia. If you've got sunburn, put some rakia on it. Yeah, Some people use it as aftershave lotion, but it's like it's it's... Put it this way: uh, When you come up to Sydney, I'll, I'll get Dad to. Um, <laughs> so I'll get a bottle from somewhere and I'll give you some, uh, and uh, have some when you got a day off. Don't have it before you're driving or <laughs> before you have to fly. But when you have it, just have it, and you have it in little glasses. Yeah, bang, that bang, and they just okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, see, this was that's what I said. Dad had have few a few light beers, but when we go to Eric's, yeah. I can remember as a twelve or thirteen year old. It was the only time when mum would drive home. Yeah. So dad dad wouldn't be driving home after being a big Eric's on no, the Slimovitz. No, you can't. No, you can't. So, mate, what was your introduction to to, to football? Eh? Well, obviously with the migrant background, like I said yeah. to you, um, I mean, I loved all my Australian sports. So a, a lot of those people I talked about, like your Brad Fittlers and Jason, who I played cricket with in the summer, yeah. would go play rugby league. And they used to always say, because I was quite always big for, you know, come and play rugby And I, I really wanted to play rugby league, but that was the only time I can remember, my, well, especially mum, saying, you're not playing rugby league. And I, I think that was the only time I ran away from home, but I, I came back about 20 minutes later because I started to get hungry. <laughs> and, um, but that's why I'm a great believer in for playing as many sports as possible. So that will, you know, because of the, it, it is, it's the influence. And I keep saying this to people. you got to, you know, how these days you've got to be careful how you put things in this, that, and the other, which yes. is understandable. But, I truly believe, I, and I, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, not only from a physical perspective, but also maybe from a mental perspective, you probably carry on what, you know, what, what's sort of been passed down. And they were obviously football, you know, football fanatics, soccer fanatics, whatever you want to call it, soccer fanatics. So, um, and then the story basically goes that, that, like my dad says, that I wasn't good enough outfield, so I just eventually went back to in the goals, where I tell the opposite. <laughs> I say, because I played so many hand sports, cricket, I'd play AFL at school. I'd play rugby union. I played rugby league. I I felt very comfortable w- with that as well. So so that's how I used to play for the local team. Which was who? Who like the who was the first team, team you would have played play. for? Originally, I used to play for a team called Hayduk Rangers, right? Right. And then I went to a club called Marconi, which is by the name you know is an Italian club. And then from Marconi yep. to Sydney Croatia. But there was one man that I met when I was about eleven or twelve called Ron Corrie. He was a, a, a Australian goalkeeper. 
And uh, and he basically took me under his wing and he used to get me basically from age 12, 13, training with the first team. And I used to go twice a week with him. It was really hard work. And he basically drummed into me a, a technique that was nearly foolproof, you know? And so I made my mind up after watching Craig Johnson win the FA Cup in, I think it was 85, 86, around there, 85, 86 for Liverpool against Everton. He scored, I thought, you know, talk about inspiration. In the morning. And it's there! It's Craig Johnston! Liverpool are in the lead! Yes. I was like, I'm going to do that one day. So I had my mind made up and, and I realised that obviously because over here in Australia it was still part-time there. And I said, I said, I, no problem, but I'm, I'm going to go over to, to, well, to England. I wanted to, I had my mind made up to go to England to play football. And I was very fortunate to do it. So one of my most fascinating discussions I've had on this podcast with, with Craig Johnston and the way he trained himself in the car park. He just, unbelievable. Uh, he's, he's up in Newcastle. Uh, unbelievable man. So I said to you I made some notes, Bozza. Uh, so, uh, so which which I rarely do, but this is uh, – these are so it's the same with Craig. It's the same with Aloisi. It's the yeah. same with Kale. All of a sudden, as a kid, you end up on the other side of the world. And this is what fascinates me about what you guys do. Age 17 in 1989, moved to the UK – as you get signed, there's visa situations with Manchester United. How, how, 16, I moved. 16. So how does it come about? How do you find, like, do you get a letter? Does someone ring you up? What happens? Boys? Well, it's funny you mentioned Craig Johnson. So 1987 is the year. Um, so I said to you, Croatia, or it was then still Yugoslavia, but we went to Croatia for a holiday uh, with the family, with mum and dad and my sister Tanya. Yeah. And... Uh, a chap over here called Alan Vest, who was a, a wonderful coach uh, over here for, for young players and all that, had a friend called Malcolm Cook, funny enough, who, gave, who emailed me the other day. He was a youth team manager at Liverpool, okay? Right. So this is like, you know, August, September 1987. So he said, look, are you going to go after your holiday in Croatia to the UK? And my sister and my mum said, well, we'd like to go to see Buckingham Palace and things like that. So, so my dad said, yeah, probably for two or three days. So he said, would you be willing to go up, which we did in a bus, to Liverpool for three days to see, see how things go? So I was like, of course, yeah, of course you will. So those three days, and Craig Johnson was there, yeah? And those was three he? days, yeah, he was there, he was there. Those three days that I had, I don't know why, whether it be destiny or whatever, but uh, and like, it's like everything I touched turned to gold, like ridiculously so. Not only was I, I performed like well, but like, you know, things were happening, you know, like, like, you know, when you're in goals, you know, if somebody hits a shot and hits you in the face, that things are going well for you and it doesn't go in, yeah? <laughs> so at the end of that, Kenny Dalglish, who was the then manager, said, look, listen, this is September now, and I, you know, we want to sign in now. And my dad said, look, back then it was, remember, year 10, and then if you wanted to go on, you'd do year 11 and year 12. I think it's a little yeah. bit different now, but whatever. So dad said, look, listen, he's only got a couple of months left to school. Let him go back and finish school. He can come back at the start of next season. He's only 15 now. So in that interim period from September... Uh, to the following July, wh oh. when I went to Manchester United, the late Eddie Thompson, who was a coach here, mm. uh, he went to school and played with Sir Alex Ferguson. So he heard about it. So he rang Fergie. And at that time, Fergie was just starting in Man United, but his big thing was, you know, if we if we can knock off Liverpool, we'll be number one team. So he rang my parents. And he said, I want him over in March. So that was now March, say, 88. So I went there for two weeks. And basically, he locked the door at the end of two weeks and said, you, you're, you're signing for us, yeah? And um, and I've told this story a million times. So I hope it's not boring for people that have heard it before. No. So he goes, he goes, ring up, ring up your parents. So I said, I said, it's, I said, it's about one in the morning. He goes, ring him up. <laughs> so I, so I rang him up. I said, you know, Dad, what's wrong? Everything. I said, yeah, everything's fine. 
I go, um, you know, the boss wants to speak to you. I was calling the boss, you know. So then dad and him are talking to each other. And and, uh, and the funniest thing is some, sometimes I had a bit of trouble understanding Fergie when he spoke really quick. But dad, <laughs> who came over here when he was 15, his English is great, but he still has a bit of an accent. Him and Fergie could understand each other great. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. <laughs> anyway, they're, they're arguing a little bit. I can, you know, I was, I'm in the room, not arguing, but debating because, you know, he, they're like, you know, first of all, Dad said, like, you, know, you have to ring it this time. I said, yeah, I had to ring it this time I wanted to. And, and my dad said, look, listen, can you come back and we discuss that? So in the end, he turned around and said uh, to my dad, you know, where's your wife? You know, Francis, yeah? And, and he went right here next to me. Why? He goes, I want to speak to her, right? And mum's like, Miss, you know, she likes, she's such a, so nice. She likes everyone to be, this, you know, saying that we treat everyone the same and this, that, and the other. So he goes, Francis. And I hear mum goes, yes, yeah? And he goes... I want to sign your son and I want to sign him now. So I told him I'll give him £200 a week and I'm going to give him a £2,000 signing on fee. But as soon as he signs and gets that £2,000, he's to put it straight in your account. My mum's going, okay, sign straight away. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Fergie, So clever. there you go. So there you go. So that was so July, yeah, July 1988, it went over. Um, and then I, I made my debut not, not so long after. I think it was when I was 18 against Wimbledon at home. 30th of April, 1990, in a 0-0 draw. That's so right, you must have done right. your job. At Old Trafford, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the big problem was I couldn't get a working permit because at that time the, the conditions basically were to get a work permit, you had to be, number one, on wages that were comparable to first-team players, which was going to be not impossible at that age, but, yeah. Um, and you had to play, I think, a certain amount of times for Australia. We, we tried that. We, we played one game for Australia, I think, during that time as well. Um, but in the end, I, I still couldn't get it. So it was devastating, huh. really was devastating. But uh, that, so that's, that's just the way the cookie crumbles, I guess, yeah. So a couple of questions on that, Bozzer. So you're 16, 17. I, I had a look. Uh, again, this is not my area of expertise. But uh, in the squad, you've got Pallister, Hughes, Ince. Like th- these, are, these are superstars. So ha- how are you... And then Sir Alex wasn't Sir Alex at that stage. You no. know, he was on his way up. But how does a kid from Australia get into a team environment like that and not just sit back and think heaven's above? Well, no, to be fair, number one, they looked after me very well. Okay, and in terms of like they made me feel very comfortable, obviously realised I was there on my own long, long way away at a young age. Did you struggle with the, the distance uh, and uh, missing home uh, or not? I, I struggled a little bit with, look, you know, how can I say this? And I mean this, like going from Sydney to Salford, Manchester was a bit of a shock, to be honest. Yeah, I, I bet. You realise, and I think people do now when they first go overseas, of how lucky we are to live in this great country. Yes. Um, and back then as well, um, you know, like, I, but, but my impression was I'm still, I'm going back to what I counted as, because that, when I grew up at school, that's how you know, the mother country, so to speak, you know. Mm. Um, but a lot of the things weren't, uh, perhaps as as good as well, not not perhaps. A lot of the things over there, simple things, um, weren't uh, uh, weren't as good as they were over here. I mean, I mean, just simple things. Um, I, I can always remember, you know, going into their version of say a, a Woolworths or, or Coles, you know, and and seeing a massive line and like maybe two people on the checkout counters. There wasn't the self, you know, where you could pay yeah. for it yourself then. And I just, I never used to say anything, but I just used to think to myself, you know, because I always count myself as lucky as being there anyway because I'm at a great club and living what my dream was. But I used to think to myself, like, if that was in Sydney or Melbourne or like somebody would go on the phone straight away and there'll be 10 people at those checkout counters. (laughs) So just little things like that. The food as well, 
um, you know, but the food really improved in England as they more and more, they, they sort of, you could say, embraced Europe. I, yes. I, I must say that, yeah. But did you run out with that red shirt on as a 17-year-old thinking, oh, I'm playing for Manchester United? Like, did you ring mum and dad back at home saying, right, I'm getting a game here? Uh Maybe before the debut, I think I told him I was making my debut. But again, I, I, like I said, you know, when you're that age, you think back to Howie when you yeah. were that age, you, you're a little bit fearless. You know, yes, that's, you that's probably a, 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 it can be a, a bad thing, but overall, I think it's a good thing. But you, you just got to be a bit careful. You know, sometimes you learn harsher lessons. So, um, and I used to just, you know, I used to just think to myself, if I, you know, I'll do everything I possibly can every day. And remember, when you become familiar, it's like, it's perhaps like the first time maybe you've done one of your big interviews, it's yep. it, it, it can be a bit of a, you know, you sort of step back or maybe when you're in the commentary box with with, with the late warning or with Adam Gilchrist the first time, you're a little bit, okay, yeah. But eventually you you ease into the job and they those people make you feel comfortable and that's why you never forget those people um, because, you know, either way, because sometimes there may be people who don't make you feel comfortable so you might mm. not forget that, but the majority do and all those people you mentioned plus others, they made me feel really comfortable. So I was like, okay. Well, I must be doing something right. I said. <laughs> Back to Mark shortly. Next up on the Howie Games, I am pumped about this one. One of my favourite Australian athletes, Usman Kawaja. The reason I went out there and trained my absolute backside of the reason I last two years I could have easily just gone. I'm just going to chill and enjoy, you know, my life here, my last few years of cricket, whatever. You know, I could have done that very easily but I didn't because I love the game. I'm passionate about the game and I want to excel and achieve and I want to be the best version of myself of this game before I leave this game and to achieve and try to achieve as much as I can in terms of, you know, how much I can push myself and becoming a better player because I love doing it. I love training. If there's any advice I could give to the kids and being very simplistic is just make sure you enjoy what you're doing because that's how you're going to get the most out of yourself and achieve as much as you can with whatever you put your mind to. That's Usman Kawaja next up on the pod. Back to Bozza. Let's get to goalkeeping itself. Before yeah. we go to coming back to the villa. And, yeah, yeah. And, uh, 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 so I've got a couple of kids, Bozza, yes. that um, often How ask old? questions. A 12-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son. Excellent. Um, and my son... He wanted to ask you a question. He often asks a question of the guest. So his name is Mac, but Bozzy, you'll like this. He rolls as the big penguin. That's, that's, <laughs> that's just what he likes to be in life. So to get into the goalkeeping discussion and what's required, we'll start with a young bloke if you happen to take his question. All right. Hey, Mark, big penguin here. First off, I watched some of your highlights. They are wonderful. You saved so many goals. Anyway, when we play soccer at school, if you score a goal, you can be goalkeeper if you want to. But if you miss, you're not goalkeeper. And um, there's another one of my friends that always is goalkeeper because he's a really good goalkeeper. So he doesn't normally miss goals, which is really annoying. But when I'm goalkeeper, I sometimes miss them, and that's really annoying. So what are a few tips to become a better goalkeeper? Oh, that's a lovely question. That's a lovely, lovely question. And thank you so much for the compliment. I, th I think the biggest tip I'll give to you is to take the ball out in front of you. And that comes back a lot to, um, because I used to, uh, uh, I don't want to sound really conceited, but I used to I used to be a very good fieldsman as well in cricket. 
Right. And specifically as in slips or at square leg especially. This is why Mark wore. This is why Mark yeah. wore wasn't oh, going to get a him, game. I told him. I told him. He was lucky. <laughs> um, and the most important thing you, you learn, obviously, is soft hands, yes, but also to catch the ball out in front of you because if in the event that you don't catch the ball uh, properly the first time, if it's in front of you and it goes up, they, I used to always be taught, you always got a chance to get the rebound. But eventually, if you've got soft hands, whether you catch the ball the traditional way or the or the new way, yeah, yep. and you bring it in and it's in front and it's like I said, it's in front of you rather than away from your body, you got a much better chance of getting it. So think about that when you're a goalkeeper. Other things like reflexes, uh, positioning, they they will come, especially reflexes. They will come with the, with the amount of practices that you do. So would you would you have you know they saw say Cadell Evans has been on this show. He went to the AIS. He had an extraordinary VO two max. Would you think? Well, I think they tested Bradman's reflexes back in the day and they were nothing amazing, Bozzett. Would you think your reflexes are above the mean for the I, average punter or I not? I would say reflexes are, yes. But okay. coming back to the Bradman story, and this is yeah. what I was going to get into as well, but this comes with this comes with, with practice. There will come a time, as I'm saying to the young boy, there will come a time where, uh, and some people, you, it's hard. Sportsmen, will, I think, understand what I'm saying, but it's hard to explain it in words. You can get a feel for things, okay? Right. All right, so... Well, your podcast is number one, right? It's number one for a reason. Okay, yes, you get great guests, but you're also excellent at your job. And I'm sure that you've got Thank your you. notes for this interview, as you've done for other interviews, but because of your experience and expertise, you will fill things during the interview that you'll go, all right, I, I might leave that question and, and go here, right? Yeah. Right, okay. But you felt that because of your expertise and experience. Exactly the same with goalkeeping, I would say everything else. And I would say someone of the calibre of Don Bradman, uh, Sir Don Bradman uh, and and the late Shane Warne, they would have been the same. And huh. If you if you take the Shane Warne example, I, I you know how many times have we used to see Shane Warne getting hit, like being tried to be hit out the attack? People were hitting him after six after six. But what was the difference? He never dropped his head. Mm. He had a feel. He said, "Okay, well, okay, that's happened, but I'm going to feel now what I need to do next time." And I'm sure that would have been similar to Don Bradman. I'm sure if you ask Michael Jordan that, uh, if you're able to ask Cassius Clay or Muhammad Ali that, that, that you get a feeling for that specific situation. Now, that feeling may not be the same for every game, but that particular day, that particular time, that's what I think people talk about, about being in the zone. That's really what they mean. So it's a it's a brilliant explanation. You talked about Warney getting hit for sixes, and I, this is it's a it's a privilege for me to chat to people of your caliber and really find out what's going on. So I really appreciate it, mate. So say it's ten minutes into a game of Premier League football, and we'll get to Villa, as I said, and you are unable to save a ball you would typically expect to save. Right. And it goes into the back of the net and all of a sudden you're 1-0 down and there's 40,000 uh, Chelsea supporters giving it to you. How do you reset the brain to not dwell on the one you've missed? Uh, well, I was going to get to this. Now, this is, and this is something you've got to be careful telling kids because you don't want to scare them off completely. Watch the way it sets up in front of the goalkeeper. He thinks he's got it covered. It bounces up over Matt Bosnich. And Fowler has his second... Well, there's many minutes. But that is probably the most difficult thing of goalkeeping because a oh, lot has of the, to be. yeah, the, the vast, well, not the, all the teams I played for, I was fortunate to play for, the vast majority of the time were favourites. So that means I would have less work than the opposition goalkeeper. And if you happen to make a mistake, that means you might not get another opportunity maybe for another 10 minutes or so to put that right. Where mm. if you're in a team that's sort of, you know, sort of being attacked and sort of on the back foot, 
you got to have chance after chance after chance. After. And people are going to say, oh, yeah, he made a mistake, but he still made six or seven saves. Different story when you play for a bigger team. So you got that time to dwell on it. Yeah, well, that's when you've got to be, from a mental perspective, it, it's it's such a hard thing to say because you've you got to be careful how you say it again because people might sort of take it as, oh, what, what are you saying? You don't care. No, it's not that you don't care. You care. But you care so much that basically you think your mind is like the window wipers of your car, right? So think that front windscreen is your mind. When something like that happens, you've got to put those window wipers on and scrub it away. Then you can think about it afterwards. Because if you do, you you, you could end up on a, on a road to ruin. You can make another one. And, and by that time, seriously, the manager should really start thinking, oh, it might be better to take him off, which would be nothing more embarrassing for a goalkeeper. So that is the real test. And you've got to be able to do that. Because not only will there be opposition supporters having a go at you, but a lot of your own supporters, you can hear the groans and that they're having a go at you as well. So you've got to put that right as soon as possible. Now, a lot like, say, blackjack, when you go and lose a big hand, you don't want to go chase it and, and chuck good money after bad either. So you, you've got to balance that out of how, you know, because normally when you're on top, you know, you, you can think you can do anything. But when you, you know, when you lose a big hand, you, you, you've got to build up steadily. And that goes the same when you're playing in goals and you've made a mistake. Okay, you've got to build it back steadily. You don't want to go after making a mistake, then try to do something unbelievable. And then because nine times out of ten, you'll probably make another mistake. So just get back to basics and think about those window wipers. I right? hate just w- w- wiping that clean. Now, the other big trick is, and this is hard as well sometimes, if you are doing fantastic, that as a goalkeeper, you, you could be vulnerable as well because you think you're bulletproof. And that's where the test comes in because everyone deep down, if you've done something well, you don't want to forget about it. Yeah. But if you can have the windows on, uh, window wipers on half the speed for a mistake, it is better for you because you think you've got to think to yourself, I'm only, I'm not only as good, uh, I'm not only as good as my last save. Forget that. I'm only as good as my next save. I'm only as good as my next game. You've got to have that mindset if you're going to sort of, uh, at the very, very highest level, continue on. Or else, like I said, from a mental perspective, in goalkeeping, I would say is ninety percent mental. Um, it can affect you for a long time. You, it, and you know, you, the last thing you want is people say, he's not the same. Because once that happened and, and word starts getting around, people are like, well, do I trust him? Because out of all the positions, goalkeeper is the one you need to perhaps trust the most because a mistake 99.9% of the time results in a goal. It is a brilliant explanation, Bozza, and I love the windscreen wipers. It really is. <laughs> let's, let's move on to Aston Villa. I, I never told you this. I was working on... Um, Formula One in in the late 90s and I lived in a a little place called, um, uh, well, a couple of places in Biggin Hill, which was in uh, Kent and a little place in Surrey. Farningham was in Kent and Biggin Hill and you were the only Australian playing in the Premier League. So all of a sudden, and then the Trinidad and Tobago tornado Dwight York (laughs) arrived. So it it would be on a Sunday if I was home, as they do in England, we'd, we'd play snooker and we'd have pints and we'd watch the Villa because yeah. you were the only Australian. And I got to go to Villa Park a few times and watch you play. I've never told you this. And yeah. I can the chance there, you'll never beat the Bozza. You'll never uh, beat the Bozza uh, when you were in goal. I'm just trying to explain to people how big you were and how big you became. But I want to put that in in the lens of a, a penalty shootout. And I went back and looked at this. Yeah. So the the League Cup, it's the Coca-Cola Cup, so you can win the you can win the Premiership, Bozza, obviously. You can win the FA right. Cup and That's then right. there's the League Cup. Correct. So there's, there's three cups. Three domestic trophies and, and one in Europe if you're lucky enough to be playing in Europe, yeah? And obviously, yep. we'll get to what you won. Yeah. But uh, the semi final of the League Cup in 1990, 
394. Tranmere Rovers yeah. versus Aston Villa. And they were in the championship as well, so they were in the division below us, yeah. So it's set up um, 3-1 after the first leg, but 4-all on aggregate, yep. so you have to you have to play again. Now, you saved three penalties in this. Yeah. Before we go into the specifics, so I watched it again this morning. It gave me bloody tingles, mate. I don't know how many of those views on YouTube are yours, but they, it's 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 brilliant. It's a penalty shootout. There's a cup final on the line. What is required in penalties for physical and, and mental approaches? Because, again, for people that aren't familiar, yep. Mark, Mark was known as one of the best uh, defenders of penalties in, in English Premier League football. Yeah. Well, penalties, remember, for everyone, are 11, like about, it's about 11 yards. So, or, so it's about, I don't know, I think, I don't know, it's, a, it's about 10, 10, about 10 metres away from the goal. So, number one, the penalty taker is the favourite, which is good. That's okay. It's okay to be the underdog. Uh, the, the the next thing from a like physical perspective, from a technique perspective, is the run up. The run up that the player takes, the shape that he takes, generally not always, gives a real idea to where he's going to put the ball. Okay. Oh, and right. the last thing, if you can if you can be quick enough to do this, you know when you hold it, one of those big large land cameras and you put the finger down, it goes right. If you can do that with the player approaching and watch his non-kicking foot, that non-kicking foot usually is the biggest telltale sign where he's going to put the ball. If the non-kicking foot is pointing there, the vast majority of the time, unless it's somebody that's exceptional and is actually knows what you're thinking, he's going to do something, normally it will go there. If he puts so it where, there, where, the, where the non-kicking where foot the non -kicking points, foot, so if it points so to the, the left, it goes to the left. The non-kicking foot is pointed, say so if it's the right foot coming at you and the yep. non-kicking foot's right close to the ball and it's pointing that way, nine times yep. out of ten, it's going to go that way. When ah. they've got a bit of a space, that uh, 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 again, and it, and it's a curled run up as well. It's usually going to curl it to that side, right? But remember that as with everything, this is what I say to people about stats and everything, and this, that, and the other. There is no foolproof way because the bottom line is the guy could miss kick it and it could go in, okay? Or you could do everything right, but he hit it so well, but it was just past you. From the mental perspective, I was never one to to really go into um, uh, sort of sledging or anything like that. Um, and the reason why is I think because a lot of players used to do that, so a lot of our players were, were used to it. Uh, my thing was, okay, the penalty's been given. If the players on my team want to complain about it, that's their issue, but I'm just going to stay in my goal and to watch everything very closely because another thing is they will have a look. They will have a look on the site, and it might be a sneaky one. The true side, or if they're going to go down the middle, that they go – they will have a sneaky look, just maybe like that, because then the really good ones, the really good ones will start looking the other side. But once they've taken that little look at where they're going to really put it, so they might just go like that and put their head down, put the ball down, walk back, and then really start looking that side to make you think they're going to go that side. So that is all the type of things you've got to sort of conjure up in one yeah. and then to hold to that last minute and then dive because sometimes if you go too early, and the players have got, like Dwight York, was he used to practice so many times, he had such good reflexes that the goalkeeper used to go early. He could he could look just at the goalkeeper and then put it the other side. So those are all those little things you've got to take. And and then you've got to go. When you go, you've got to go. Now, it, it's, it's difficult because the majority of penalties uh, go, you could say, from medium to low ground. So yes. if they hit it high above, that, that's when that's when that's when you've got to be really lucky that you. There was one once I think against Deportivo where for some reason I don't know why I think that come back to what I said about the feeling about feeling it. 
I dived high and he hit it high and it just like, and people were like, oh, well, that was amazing. And I was like, thank you very much. But the re I said, like, I was lucky too, because if you put it low, it would have went straight underneath me. There's Bebeto, ball on the spot and Bosnich making his European debut. What a moment for him, Bebeto. What a save, a fabulous stop from Bosnich. He struck it well enough for Beto and on his European debut, a terrific stop. And there was another thing as well, I remember once playing against Leicester City and one of my ex-teammates, Gary Parker, was taking the penalty for Leicester and, uh, and he, he, uh, he mishit the penalty and it went straight like underneath my legs. But if he hit it properly, I would have saved it. So those things can happen as well. And like I said to you, I, you have to feel sorry for you do in a way. I mean, at the time you don't, but you feel sorry for, uh, for the players because they're expected to score. And in that particular game, after 120 minutes, and, uh, you know, they, they'd also hit the crossbar and the like, which they would have won it for them. And extra time comes to an end. And this quite amazing, really, Coca-Cola Cup semi-final will have another chapter to be added. And they were so close. I could feel, I could feel that they were feeling the pressure a bit. Uh, so, it was, so on, on it was that, alleviated a little bit because the referee made us take the penalties at our home ground in front of their supporters. I think yeah, that, I, I noticed yeah. that. So, so yeah. you, you made a save. Jed Brennan is the next man in the firing line for Tranmere Rovers. And then it got to the point where they got in front. Yes. Now it's sudden death. Richardson for Villa. And he has missed it. The Tramia players are celebrating, but they better just mute those celebrations briefly. They've still got to score themselves, of course. So if they'd scored the penalty, they're off to Wembley in the Correct. cup final. Correct. And my man Bozza, bang, stops it coming in. And if he scores from the penalty spot, Tranmere Rovers will be at Wembley. And the club that's never played at the top level of English football in its 73-year history are one kick away from Wembley. And you know what the funniest part of that story, Howie? Yeah? The what? guy who took that penalty was a guy called Liam O'Brien. Now, when right. I was a young apprentice uh, uh, and young professional at Manchester United, so was he. So oh. I'd, I'd known him. And the funny thing was... He, uh, he'd taken 100 penalties against me and his favourite side is actually normally the other side. But I knew him and I knew him so well. He was a, a, a really proud Irishman and I knew that he, you know, he, he, um, you know, he could be like, you know, he, he's very, he was very smart and very shrewd. And I was thinking to myself, I reckon all those penalties he took, he, know, he knows I know that that's his favourite side. So I thought, I, I think he's going to go opposite. Yeah, and luckily... He did, and luckily I saved it because else that would have been it. What drama! He'll be the coolest man on the park. This chap taking this one. He saved it, Bosnich. I told you it'd be cool. I didn't say he'd score it. Dear me, it's, it's incredible. It's just swinging to and fro here. And so then you saved the next penalty, which put you into 
the cup final. Ian Nolan has got to score this, got to score it, or Tranmere are out. Is that as good as it can get for a keeper whose sole performance has put their team into a position to go to Wembley? Like that, that was people were coming from everywhere. Everyone wanted a piece of your big boy. Yeah, I, I, no, I think so. But also, I, I was very, very, very wary because I know myself. I know sometimes I can get carried away, and and more importantly, my manager Rod Atkinson at the time knew me as well, so it was very. They, they made an actual effort during that time, but I think they went a bit far because then I was getting a bit down and, I was like, and there were the assistants coming to me and go, relax, he's just trying to keep you. Um, they were very, very, <laughs> very, very determined to sort of, because I was only about, I was only 21 or 22, very determined to sort of to keep, keep things, you know, sort of, you know, on a level okay. playing field. Because then three days later, we played Tottenham in the league and I was just in the moat. I had saved two penalties in that game as well. So they were, they were like really on top of, you know, like, you know, and I remember then my parents came over about two weeks before the cup final, right? And we <laughs> played Ipswich at home and I can see the goal. It wasn't the worst goal, but it wasn't maybe on a better time I would have saved it. And I mean, this was part of his psychological to keep me like level-headed. And my parents in the crowd and I came in for halftime and he said, what, he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm coming to the dressing room. It was halftime. He said, that was a disgrace, that goal. You let him go out at halftime on the pitch and practice for the whole time. So, so I remember thinking, I, I remember thinking, oh, I can't do that. I, I remember staying in the tunnels. I remember the Ipswich place coming out and going, what are you doing in the tunnel? I went, oh, no, I'm just getting ready for the next, you know, I'm just getting ready for the second half. But like, then I remember telling my mum and dad, and I said, look, they're doing this. And my dad was like, what? What's it? I said, the, the, uh, I understand why he's doing it. I, he's trying to keep me on my toes. So so you, you go you go to Wembley, you beat Manchester yes. United, you won a couple of these cup titles yeah, that we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, two, two years later again uh, with, yeah. with a different team and a different manager. So, uh, so what's it? What's what's Wembley for a kid from Australia like? I think this is going to be a real classic and certainly the atmosphere here and the setting could not be better. It certainly couldn't, Brian. The two biggest cities outside of London playing each other, uh, two great sets of fans. Well, that was a tick because, like I told you at the start of the interview, watching Craig Jott say, hey, he won the FA Cup, this is the League Cup, yeah? There's a tick, yeah. We, we, we're big underdogs against Manchester United. Mm. Um, being an underdog, you, you've got pretty much nothing to lose. Here's a chance now. It's a goal by Atkinson. Like against Manchester United, they were going for the treble that year. Um, and we were, and no one expected us to win, but we did. possibility has gone out of the window here at uh, Wembley tonight as Ron Atkinson's side beats Manchester United by three goals to one. Dean Saunders with two of the goals. Um, but then going against Leeds two years later uh, with the younger side, but this is a little bit of experience that had been there two years before, um, it was different because, like I said, but we got off to a really good start. We had a, a Serbian player called Savo Milosevic who scored a cracking goal. White scored one, I think Ian Taylor was the other one who scored. There goes the final whistle. The Coca-Cola Cup final has been won by Aston Villa. 
That is the end of Mark Bosnich Part A. Don't be missing Part B. Listener.